this morning, the message is called uh, Convinced or Clouded, because when we're clouded, uh, we're, we're confused, we're not really confident, we're not really sure of something, and so we tend to, we tend to hold back, or we tend to be suspicious, or we tend to wait uh, until someone else tries first. Um, so th- these two words are, are really the title of the sermon this morning because I want us to, to pick back up uh, in, the, in the book of Acts. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 1, we're going to pick back up there. We're going to begin to move into that this coming month, uh, move further into the book. We haven't gotten too far because we want to be able to understand the foundation that needs to be in place for us to be able to move into the life that God has given us now through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so we've been talking a lot about the preparation time, and this is a, we're going to talk about it again this morning. We're going to talk about the things that Jesus wanted to make sure were in place before he ascended, where he sits now at the right hand of the Father. He ascended into the heavens and sent his spirit. He wanted to make sure that, that his disciples could carry on the mission that he began, because he really had come to give us a mission, to give us a purpose that we need to fulfill. So after Jesus had spent about 40 days with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom and preparing them for their new ministry that was going to begin with the giving of the Holy Spirit, um, we we can pick up with what he did in Acts chapter 1. So if you look at Acts chapter 1, we'll we'll start in verse 3. After his... Suffering, right? So we just celebrated Easter uh, in, in, in the Good Friday and Easter. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That's Acts chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He, he, he convinced them, he gave them proof because he didn't want them to be in any doubt. Because when we doubt something, we don't trust it, right? When there's any amount of doubt in a relationship, we don't really trust the person with our whole self. And, and God wants us to give our whole selves to him and our whole selves to his mission here on earth while we live here. So he, Luke, Luke tells us, because Luke is the one who, who, who wrote the, the book of Acts here, he continues on. Luke tells us that There's two very important things, and I want us to make sure that these are in place as we go through the the coming chapters of the book of Acts. Number one, Jesus wanted them to focus on these proofs, to know that they know that they know that Jesus has risen, that Jesus has come from the grave, from death to life. If they don't know this, if they're not convinced of this, they'll, be, they'll have a hard time telling other people about it. You know how this is, right? If you're not fully convinced of something, you don't necessarily recommend it to your family and your friends, you know? You're still trying it out. You're still trying to see if it's, it's for real or, or if it's good enough. Maybe it's an, a new medicine, you know, maybe it's something that you've been, you've been trying to, to, to take care of, you know, and, and you have taken it, but you haven't seen for yourself the evidence that it works, so you're not really telling other people about it. But if you start to take a new medicine and it's like miraculous, your pains, your aches and your pains, they go away, you're willing to tell everybody. 
In fact, you go around and say, you won't believe this new medicine I took. I don't have any more aches and pains. All my arthritis is gone. I, can, I, can, I, I, I feel like a 20-year-old. And you go around and you tell people about it because you're excited about the change that has taken place. This is what Jesus wants to make sure his disciples know that he has risen from the dead, that he has forgiven their sins, and that they now have eternal life by just putting their faith in him, by trusting him completely. But if they don't trust him completely, they won't be very good witnesses to others. they'll, they'll, They'll hold back. And he needs them to move forward into the world to fulfill God's word, to bring the gospel to every nation. If they're not convinced that Jesus is real, they're not going to tell anybody. They may have a a, a personal conviction, a personal thought. They keep it to themselves, but they're definitely not going to tell others of his love for them. And since the mission that we have as disciples is the same as their mission as disciples to tell the world, he needs to make sure, number one, that he has provided the convincing proof, it says there. The words there, the convincing proofs that he was alive. So what were those convincing proofs? My question before we get into that is, are you convinced that Jesus is alive? Are you convinced that he has risen from the dead? If you are, then you probably tell others. If you're not so sure, you're probably still waiting to see. You know, they say the jury is out. The jury hasn't come back yet. So the resurrection from the dead, which has just taken place, in the lives of these disciples, this resurrection, the fact that Christ came back, they saw him die on the cross, they, they buried him in the tomb, they went away sad because of what had happened. All of what they thought was going to take place didn't take place. And then he comes back. On that Easter morning, he's resurrected. The resurrection from the dead is no less a controversial belief now than it was then. It's hard for us to think that someone has been resurrected from the dead. I don't mean medically. They, they, they went away for a minute or two or they had to be brought back with the paddles or something like that. I mean someone who's been dead for a long time, dead and buried. The, the, the fact that um, they had to put all their faith in that truth was as difficult for them as it is for us. When Paul speaks, the Apostle Paul, when he goes to Athens and he speaks about the resurrection, it says in Acts chapter 17 that he was mocked for this belief. Like, you're crazy. People don't come back from the dead. That's a crazy thing to be going around telling people, right? So regardless of how God's witnesses are received, the truth that Jesus has risen from the dead is still the truth, And that message has to be brought even if we're mocked for it because that is the central belief of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that Jesus came back from the dead, you're not a Christian. Let me say that again. If you don't believe that Christ rose from the dead, you are not a Christian. You're some other type of believer or some other type, but you're not someone who puts your faith in Christ, your belief in Christ. For the disciples, this is not a debatable issue. This is not a debatable issue. Jesus was giving them proof in those 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, his ascension to heaven. He was giving them proof after proof after proof. He ate with them. He he talked with them. 
he, he went to Thomas and he said, hey, you know, if, if you want, because Thomas was the doubter. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. So when, when they told him, he's like, no, I'm not going to believe it. Not unless I can touch him and put my hand, you know, it, see, the, see the holes in his hands and put my hand into his wound in his side. Then I'll know it's him. And so Jesus challenges him and says, here I am, you know, go ahead. And it doesn't appear that Thomas needed any more proof than that. And at that point, Thomas finally believed. Because the, the issue could be that Jesus was some type of ghost, some type of, of spirit that was appearing to people, some type of mysterious uh, idea or philosophy that has now taken its, its place in this group of people. Some type of like mass hysteria where people are together believing something that, that is supernatural that's going on. So although his, his resurrected body was different in some ways, it didn't seem to have the same um, physical obstacles that, that our bodies have. Like, I can't get into a locked room without, you know, unlocking the door and getting in. They were locked, it says in the Gospels. They were locked up, hidden, because they were afraid that the Romans were going to come after them next. And they didn't know what was going on, why Jesus had been killed. They were fearful. The disciples had gathered together, locked the doors, hidden themselves away. And then Jesus appears among them. It doesn't actually say in scripture that Jesus walked through walls. We hear that, it's, it's, you know, because people are saying, well, how did he do it? He must have been able to take his physical body and work his way through uh, somehow and be into a room. But Jesus was already doing supernatural things like that with his body before he died. So his, his walking on the water, for instance. He was able to defy gravity and walk on the surface of the water. That was, that was not his resurrected body. That was his body, the body that, that God had inhabited. He gave the ability to do these things. So it, the issue that we have is, that, is not that he's some type of ghost. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, Luke records for us, then their eyes were opened and they recognized and then he disappeared from their sight. So Jesus was doing this kind of, here I am, oh, now I'm over here. That was on the Emmaus Road, by the way. Now I'm in this room with these disciples. Now I'm over here as he first appeared to them. But then they began to gather around him as a community. And as a community, they began to spend time with him, listening to him. He stood among them, it says, and he said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Jesus' body was a real body. And he had to say it to them, though, because they weren't, they, they thought their eyes were playing tricks on them, right? He had to say to them, see, look at my hands, look at my feet. It is me. It, it, like, I'm here with you. Touch me and see. For the spirit doesn't have flesh or bones, as you see that I obviously have, right? So he was having to make that point, because the resurrection from the dead blows your mind, right? There's so many movies and stories about this where, you know, people come back from the dead, you know, and, and, and you know, it's just, just one of these things that, that sort of defies logic. But God being God overcame death. He had victory over death, scripture tells us. And so he came back in physical form to be with his disciples for this period of time to convince them that the work that he came to do was completed that their sins had been forgiven on Calvary, that the Lamb of God had died, had shed its blood, died, and now had risen again and was there with them. 
So Jesus ate in front of them. And the eyewitness testimony of the disciples was extremely important in the early days of the church. I would say it is as well today. But in those days, it was so important that the apostle Peter insisted that when they needed to replace Judas, because Judas had betrayed Christ and Judas was now gone, when they needed to replace him, so there would be 12 disciples again, uh, Peter said they needed to find someone who was with us the whole time that the Lord Jesus went in and out from among us beginning all the way back when John, with John's baptism. So from the time Jesus was baptized to when he was taken up from us, Peter says, we need to find someone who was a witness to that, a personal witness. They needed to do that because that personal encounter with Jesus is so important. And the witness of this new community, this new Organism, I guess, a living organism, the church, was going to be based on the eyewitness accounts of the disciples. Those people had a very special role to play on the earth for their time on the earth. We as a church also have a very special role to play for our time on the earth. We are witnesses just as they were witnesses. We are witnesses to the life of Jesus, that Jesus is alive, just as they were witnesses to the life of Jesus, that Jesus is alive. Now, it's different because we're not in that time period, but it's the same, and that it's the same spiritual principle at work. Jesus is alive in you and in me and in the church today. If we are convinced of that, we will tell other people. If we're questioning that, if we're doubting that, we'll hold back. That's just the truth of the matter. When we're convinced, we feel confident. We feel bold. We tell people, yes, this works. Do this, do that. You know, if we're not convinced, we say, well, not so sure. Jesus wants us to know, wants you to know, wants me to know that he is alive. And so he gives us his own Holy Spirit. Pentecost was that transfer. He sends his own spirit, the spirit of Jesus, to live within us, to give us convincing proofs, convincing proofs that he is among us, just as Jesus did with his early disciples. So this is an important thing because for us to be witnesses to the kingdom, we have to have testimonies, we have to have boldness, we have to have the truth working its way in our lives. If we don't, and it was interesting, Lila started worship this morning by talking about the, the, the great things that God has done. And she said, you must, you, you know, think for a moment. You must have one thing that comes to mind, one great thing that has come to mind. A couple weeks ago, before Easter, in the prayer group, we were, we were led to just sort of share little testimonies of what God has done or, 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 or how God has reached us or what God is saying to us or whatever. And one of those testimonies was one of our elders, Mike Hanlon, had shared about his conversion, where he came from before he was a believer to where he is now. And so then he shared that on Easter Sunday, if you were here with us. That's a, a testimony of convincing proof that Jesus is alive, that God could change someone who was lost in their sin, who was trapped in addiction, who was who separated from his family and from his wife and bring them back to their right mind, 
back to a place where they can grow to be the man of God that God wants them to be. That's a convincing proof. In each one of our lives, those who are truly saved, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, our lives are a convincing proof to someone else or to other people as we share that, that Jesus is alive. Because Mike didn't do that. God did that in Mike. God changed Mike. And the convincing proof was that even his wife took a little while, but then she was finally convinced that this was real. And she then came to Christ as well because of his change and what God had done in his life. This is the work of the church, an individual within the church, but also us collectively, is that our lives are changed and transformed because Jesus is alive. He has risen from the dead, and now he lives within us, changing us, making us more like him, sanctifying us. It's a process for sure. Some of us have a ways to go, but as we grow in him and as we change, Our testimony, we should be able to walk in more confidence and more boldness than ever before. Because our testimonies are that powerful witness that Jesus is alive. So the second thing, that was the first thing, that we need to be convinced that Jesus is alive. But the second thing that Jesus wanted to make sure before he sent them out with his spirit is that they understand what the kingdom of God is all about. Kingdom of God is the theme of Jesus' life. It's the theme of his teachings. If you go back into the Gospels, especially the Gospel of, of Matthew, for some reason, the way the language is translated, the kingdom of God shows up again and again and again. Jesus is always pointing to or talking about or giving evidence of the kingdom of God. So as believers, number one, we have to know that Jesus is alive in our lives, that we have been filled with his living spirit, that he has risen from the dead and now he lives within us, number one. Number two is we need to know what the kingdom of God is all about. What does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God? Luke does not specify the content of all of Jesus' teachings regarding the kingdom, but in verse three, after Jesus had suffered, He says, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. So in those 40 days, he didn't talk about the Red Sox. He didn't talk about the weather. He didn't talk about the best fishing spot. He didn't talk about quilting. He He talked about the kingdom of God. Because he was on a mission, Jesus was fulfilling his mission, and he was transferring his mission to them. Because he was just about to give him his very spirit, his very own Holy Spirit. But he needed them to understand what the spirit is for. The spirit is to bring the kingdom. To bring the kingdom here on earth. As he taught his disciples to pray, you remember the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's it? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth, just as it is in heaven. The kingdom is on his mind. The kingdom should be on our minds too. Unfortunately, we're easily distracted. We want to talk about quilting. We want to talk about baseball. We want to, we want to talk about fishing. We want to do... But the kingdom, the kingdom was what Jesus talked about. He rose from the dead. 
He came back from being dead. We don't even know exactly what took place during those three days when he was in the grave, when he was dead. People like to say, wow, you know, he went to hell and he rescued this because they're basing it on this verse or that verse. He didn't talk. I'm sure they had questions like, Jesus, where were you? When you were dead, where were you? And he just, let's talk about the kingdom. Let's talk about what's really important, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. So for us as believers, we have to know he's alive and we have to know what he's all about. And what he's all about is the kingdom of God. So our question for ourselves is, are we all about the kingdom of God? Or are we all about some other kingdom? There's one kingdom we all struggle with, the kingdom of self, where I'm the king and where my opinion matters and where I want What I want gets done first and then later on. But Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things will come after you. In other words, we'll be taken care of. But seek first the kingdom, not self. Our whole culture is built around the kingdom of self, which is, that's where we struggle. That's why we struggle. But Jesus probably spent this 40 days reminding them of the many parables that he taught and how he had shown them the signs of the kingdom by doing miracles. Because in the kingdom of God, there is no sickness. There is no disease. There is no demonic possession. Not in the kingdom. Not where Christ rules. And so we always think of that as heaven. Well, heaven, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no demons, there'll be no darkness. That's true in heaven. But our prayer is that his kingdom would come here on earth just like it is in heaven. That there would be freedom from disease, that there would be freedom from addiction, that there would be freedom from from demonic influence or whatever. Those things are available now if we walk in the power of the kingdom and in the power of the spirit of God. We have to be convinced of that. We have to put our faith in that so that we act in that way, that we're not afraid of that. The kingdom of God is here among us, Jesus said, among you when you walk according to his will. Because it's those who live in the will of God who live in the kingdom of God. Because if you rebel against the king... If you rebel against him, if you don't follow his way, if you don't follow his will, you're no longer walking in the kingdom because you're walking in another kingdom according to another, another rule, another ruler. So when Jesus comes and he talks to them, he talks to them about the kingdom. Over 80 times in the gospels, the kingdom of God is mentioned. We should rehearse those. We should go back and read those parables and bring them before God in prayer. Say, God, explain this kingdom stuff to me so that I can walk in the kingdom, that I can be a bold witness of your kingdom, that you rule and you reign. In Acts 28, verse 31, it says that the apostle Paul ministered in this way. It actually says he's described as welcoming all who came to see him, I love this. In in Acts 28, verse 31, the Apostle Paul, he welcomed all. Sometimes we skip over words like that, but think about it. Anyone was welcome. 
He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was a big wig. He's a big guy. This is by the end, the end of this book, the, the book of Acts. He's done a lot of amazing things. He welcomed everybody. He welcomed them. Anyone who came to see him, he welcomed them. And then boldly and without hesitation, it says, he preached to them the kingdom of God and he taught them about the Lord Jesus Christ. He preached to them the kingdom of God. We got to figure out what that means. And we're going to see it in the book of Acts. We're going to see the kingdom of God advancing, moving forward, being, being taken ground, I guess. So in the Gospels, the kingdom of God refers to the Lord's rule and reign over all things. And this kind of kingdom is not an earthly place. The kingdom of God is established in the lives of men and women who put their faith in the power of the gospel. Jesus changes people. That's the power of the gospel. By setting them free, by forgiving them of their sins, and by giving them a whole new life, filling his, his life into their empty lives. It's hard for us to understand sometimes because it's a mustard seed kingdom. You know, Luke chapter 13 talks about the mustard seed. It's this small and insignificant seed at the very beginning, but it grows and grows and grows to an unimaginable thing, right? So the key is to be able to see the unimaginable thing while we are walking through the insignificant smallness of life. And that's, that's the walk of faith. That's what we studied in the book of Hebrews. This comes by faith alone because the kingdom has a leader who came in a very different way than all other kingdom leaders. He came gently. He rode a lowly donkey. He didn't come with an army. He didn't come with a military. He didn't come with, you know, advertisements and, and all kinds of things like that. He came and he urged people to give their lives to him, to surrender to, to the king, to follow him and to be humble like he was humble and to serve others like he served others, to lay down their lives for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of those who are hurting and those who are lost. He's a very different kind of king of a very different kind of kingdom. This, this kingdom was first led by a group of followers who for the most part were uneducated, poor, sort of lowly people. Other than the apostle, the apostle Paul, he came later and he was highly educated. That's why he, he wrote so much of the, the New Testament. Most of the epistles are written by the apostle Paul because the guy had a great mind and God needed that mind. But the disciples, Peter and John and Thomas and, and all the others, they, they were nobodies. But God used them. He took them and he used them for his kingdom purposes. Romans 14, 17, I, I, I want to just read this verse to you because the kingdom of God is not found it says it's not found in food or drink because there was a discussion going on on what you can drink and what you can eat and you know all that kind of stuff in that book but but he says the kingdom of God is not about those things but the kingdom of God is about righteousness where does our righteousness come from Christ alone right we're not self-righteous Our righteousness, true righteousness only comes through the grace of God. So the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, 
and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the apostle wrote. So the kingdom of God isn't about these other things. The kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about peace. And it's about joy in the Holy Spirit. That sounds like a good kingdom. A kingdom of peace, a kingdom of joy, and a kingdom of righteousness. Righteousness just comes from having the right relationship with our Father, with one another, because we live following the will of God, following the will of Jesus, submitting to what he tells us to do, forgiving when he says forgive, loving when he says to love, when our own tendency would be the opposite, bringing ourselves down and submitting ourselves to his will. His kingdom come, his will be done. So this is how the kingdom comes. If the beginning of this kingdom appears small and insignificant in you, just keep going, keep growing, keep asking God to to use you because the king is not dead. He's risen from the dead. So if your life sometimes looks dead or feels dead, just keep praying, just keep walking in faith, just keep asking, knocking. The door will be open to you. God will open up your life and fill you with the kingdom of God and with the kingdom purposes. Because Jesus has ascended to the very throne of heaven and now he intercedes for you and for me. He prays for us. You know, in John 17, there's a, there's a long prayer that's written out that Jesus prayed for his disciples. And there's a section that says, you know, Father, bless those who believe who haven't seen. So th- that's us because we didn't live in the first century when Jesus was around. He says, you know, pour out your blessing on them as well. For they will believe even though they haven't seen me physically. They will believe based on the testimony, the witness of those who were there. So Jesus talks openly about about his power and about his eternal kingdom so often that the disciples have heard this again and again, but he rehearses it with them one more time before he ascends into heaven. Because those who believe in the kingdom message enter into the kingdom as they walk it out day by day, as he reveals to them his will. As we see the book of Acts unfold, we're going to see that they even performed miracles as he performed miracles. He was displaying the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, to change people's lives. So there's this question that they ask, and look back at Acts chapter 1, because I want you to see this question. They were a little bit confused. They were trying to figure out what what he was doing in verse 6. He just told them, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit at the end of verse 5. And when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? That's their question. And before we, we close today, I want us to, to think about this question for a moment. We're, we're, not, we're not, most of us are not nationalistic Jews. We're not, we're not Jews by heredity or anything like that. But these, he, Jesus came to Israel first, so these are the Jews, and their kingdom had been uh, taken over by many, many other kingdoms. The Babylonians, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, uh, the Assyrians, uh, eventually Alexander the Great, you know, and now Rome, you know, so kingdom after kingdom had come and sort of squashed them. 
They were a little, they were a little kingdom, a little group of people. God chose a small group to show his great power. All right? He still does. We often feel like we're the minority. Often we are. But that's God wanting to show his power through us. Because if we were big, if, if Israel was the largest nation in the world, and they, they showed up and they, and they had authority, no one, would, no one would even think of God. But when the tiny little pipsqueak shows up, like a chihuahua, next to a great Dane, you know, it's got power. Where's that power coming from? It's coming from God, because on its own, it couldn't do anything. So these, these guys had been brought up as Jews, and their, their nation had constantly been under somebody else's ruler, rulership, under somebody else's oppression. And then Jesus comes, and he talks about the kingdom. And so they were a little confused as to, is he talking about the nation of Israel and, and our heritage as Israelites? Or is he talking about something else? And so they actually ask him, which is good because they needed to clarify this for everyone who was going to hear this message, that everyone that was going to be witness to needed to understand that this was not that. See, this is a legitimate question for them. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them because they asked it. He doesn't say, don't ask that question. You know, he just, he just goes on and answers, right? He gives them a very biblical answer which we should learn from. According to the Old Testament prophets, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel is a first order of business for God in the future. Somehow, the prophet Isaiah not only promised the restored kingdom, but also weds the idea of a new and restored Israel serving as a light to the nations which will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. The servant of the Lord will bring two kingdoms, the north and south kingdom, back together for one purpose. And that one purpose is to serve God by bringing salvation to the world. So Jesus, he's the ultimate hero in their minds. And he's going to do this. But when is he going to do it? It's not that he's not going to do it. But when is he going to do it? And how is he going to do it? Understanding this background begins to shed some light on how Jesus responds to them. He tells them, we don't know, nor do we need to know, the time. See his answer in verse 7? It's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set for his own, by his own authority. It's not for you to know that. Isn't that what everyone wants to know? When is Jesus coming back? Is he coming now? I mean, things are pretty bad. Is he going to come now? Is he going to come now? Is he coming now? That's what they want to know. And look what he says, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. In other words, what's really important is what I say is important. And what I say is important is not when Jesus comes, the day or the time or the dates, but will you be my witnesses? Will you go out to the ends of the earth and tell them who I am? Will you testify of the power that I have to change lives, to give life where there was only death, to restore marriages, to free addicts, to bring about 
freedom in people's minds who have been captive. Jesus wants us to do that. Not try to find a date or a time for his return. He basically says that's not our business. It's not for you to know the times or the dates where the Father has set by his own authority. But what is for you is the power of the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. So we are to go forward in confidence, in confidence that God is in control. God knows what's going on in the world. We don't. The world is a confusing place. First of all, it's a big place, but it's also a very confusing place. You don't have to figure it out. That's the good news. You don't have to control it. That's the good news. God is in control. But there is an urgency because there will be a time when it all stops, when the whistle blows and the game is over. So there's a sense of urgency to go out and tell others about God's love for them, about God's forgiveness, which he gave to them through Jesus Christ who died for them. He wants the disciples to have that sort of tension in their lives. So not to just go off and go to sleep and wait for him to come back, but to have a purpose in these days that they have to live on this earth and to move forward with an urgency to tell people that Jesus is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. And we have it recorded for us by the Holy Spirit in God's word. Go tell the whole world about me. You know, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit it's a strange thing because they're all God, three in one. It's the Trinity issue again. But Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to go out and minister. It says in, in, in the gospel that he was baptized and the Spirit came. And then he went into the wilderness. You know that, that passage in Matthew 3 and 4. We also are anointed by the Holy Spirit to minister just as Jesus was. I want you to think about this for a moment. He was anointed by the Spirit, and then he anoints his witnesses with the same Holy Spirit to go out and to tell others. In Luke chapter 4, I just want to read you a couple verses there before we close. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Jesus unrolls this scroll. This is a big turning point in his ministry. And I've read this to you before as we begin to think about what takes place when the Spirit comes on the church, when the Spirit comes into our lives. But Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He was anointed by the Spirit for that, and so is the church. That is the message of the book of Acts. That is the message of the gospel as it moves out from being centered on the physical life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, to the spiritual life of Christ in his people. And so we are anointed by that same Spirit to reach the world with that same message. And the Apostle Paul said it so beautifully in 2 Corinthians, which is what I'll close with, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal. In other words, he's reaching out to others through us. Do you know that? 
Because if you don't, then you're not connected to the source. Because the Spirit has anointed you for that purpose. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. When we invite people back to God. We're speaking for Christ. You're being used by the Spirit of Christ to invite people back to Jesus. Now, just in case you don't know what an ambassador is, I'm closing with this, I promise. An ambassador is a representative of another culture or another way of life. So, Dennis, you're a representative, an ambassador of another way of life when you live for Jesus, when you live according to God's word. Also, in this capacity as an ambassador, you don't give your own opinion. That one hurts. Because you love your opinions. I see your opinions on Facebook and some of these people there in love with their own opinions. But an ambassador doesn't give his own opinion. He only gives the position of his home country. Our home country is heaven. So we can only give that opinion. You may have another opinion. I don't care to hear it. And neither do most of the other people that you talk to. What they would love to hear is what, what does God think? How does God feel about them? What is God's message to them? Not what you think, what your opinion is. Give me a break. Last, uh, two more, two more. The ambassador functions as a servant or a steward representing his country faithfully. And lastly, as such, he practices hospitality, courtesy, and graciousness. That is what an ambassador is. Are we Christ's ambassadors? Let's pray that we will be. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the convincing proofs that you've given us, both in your word and in our lives, that Jesus is alive. We also thank you that your kingdom is being formed in our lives and through our lives here on the earth. Help us to be bold and to be confident as your ambassadors to follow your path, doing your will, speaking your word until you return whenever that is. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.